Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, personal growth and development, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, and I have a real treat for you here today. You know, this podcast, we like to challenge basic assumptions. We we don't want to fall into this ideological dogma. And you know how I always talk about using critical thinking to reach full conclusions as best that we can reach them anyway. And we're going to put that to to the test today. I have with me Mr. Jimmy Fritz on the podcast. He is an author. He's a filmmaker. He's a musician. He's even aficionado of stoicism, which we've even talked about a few times on this podcast, just to name a few. But I think the real fascinating aspect of his life and his story is that he's a self-proclaimed ethical drug dealer for nearly 50 years now. So uh, he published a book. It's called Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer a psychedelic travel log memoir. And I am so pleased to have you on the podcast with me today, Jimmy. So why don't you just, let's just jump into it and you give us some of your background and maybe an introduction on your life and, and, and led to this book that you wrote. Um, well, I've had a kind of, a you know, an, um, an alternative life, I guess you'd call it. I grew up in England and went to school there. And then I started traveling when I was fairly young. I was 17, I hit the road and toured Europe for several years. And I was playing guitar in the street wow. and uh, making a living. Uh, finally, you know, I did, I did traveled for about 10 years on the road and all in Central America and Southeast Asia, went overland to India, did the hippie trail in the 70s. And um, so, yeah, it's been a long and long and storied uh, story. <laughs> <laughs> I can see a lot of miles covered. And along the way, so I wrote this memoir recently, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. And it's basically my, all my travels, not, not, not all my travel stories. I mean, one of the most difficult things was to figure out what to leave out because there's so many stories there. So I kind of try right. to boil it down, make it as concise as possible. But it's basically a, a journey through life, a journey through lot, many, many different countries and a journey through the use of psychedelic drugs which I was introduced to, you know, at 15 years old and um, been using regularly since then for the last 50 years. And, um, you know, looking back, I have to say that they've done nothing but good things for me. There's been no downside at all. And uh, they've done nothing but, uh, you know, enhance and improve the quality of my life. So um, I wanted to, that was the overarching theme of the book was, was how that happens and why that happens and what's going on in the world today with psychedelic research, with it, which is, you know, there's so much stuff going on at the moment. I couldn't even list it. Or when I, the second to last chapter is basically a summary of what's happening with psychedelic research. There's a kind of a, uh, a psychedelic revolution in, in psychedelic psychotherapy, basically. And uh, so there's now that they're becoming legal everywhere, they're actually being able to be studied. And there are a lot of really, really credible, you know, uh, organizations around the world that are looking into what they're good for and what they work for and what they don't work for and the problems and whatnot. And um, so it's, uh, it's a very exciting time for psychedelics. They're really coming into their own right now. The problem being is for the last 50 years, they've been illegal. So nobody's been able to really study them properly. Right. Now that's changing very quickly. So it's pretty exciting. 
Excellent. Yeah. And, and, you know, Jimmy, one of the things in, in browsing through your book, and I think this is a good place to start for the audience, you draw, you draw a very clear line of distinction between, I, I believe you coined the good drugs, quote unquote, good drugs and bad drugs. So could you kind of, you know, cause for the, for the person who, who doesn't understand this topic, well, kind of talk about the differences because sometimes they all get lumped into exactly the same category and they get stigmatized exactly the same way. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this this is a big problem, and it's always been a big problem with drugs, is that people just think drugs bad, end of story. But you, right. know, you have to be very specific when you're talking about drugs. You've got to be very specific about what you're talking about, because there's a big difference between, uh, you know, a magic mushroom and a flap of crack. Right, right. <laughs> They're a world apart. So I talk about it in the book. I have a, a, a piece in there called uh, Dumb Drugs, Smart Drugs. So smart drugs are the ones basically psychedelics, and they're the ones that improve and enhance your perception and awareness of the world, and therefore, you know, in, in, in improve your quality of your life. The dumb drugs are the ones that are done for exactly the opposite reason, but for, for exactly different people, because they're doing it to, uh, to mask their problems, basically. They're the ones that decrease your perception and awareness of the world, and therefore, destroy the quality of your life and they're done for a completely different complete opposite reasons really people do psychedelics because they want to engage in their life they want to engage in the in the world around them more fully more completely more more intricately mm -hmm. and they do the dumb drugs to screen themselves and to shut down and to protect themselves because they have problems most people uh, you know most addicts have uh, underlying psychological problems they're not doing they're not doing heroin and crack and and speed for fun Right. They're doing it to, 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 to get a respite from their psychological trauma, from the you know, psychological crises that they're going through. And that's the only relief they get. And mm -hmm. I say that in the book, like the best thing in a heroin addict's, the best thing in a junkie's life is heroin. Right. That's the only relief they get from their horrible life and their horrible situation. Now, that's a completely opposite and, uh, you know, opposed situation to psychedelics because they actually increase your involvement in, with yourself and with you, you know, in your own mind and with your own life. So it's completely opposite. And we need to make these distinctions because too often people just think, oh, drugs, they're bad, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's just not true. And I think we're finding that out now with all this new research that's going on. They're finding out that you can actually, you can actually help and cure a lot of addictions and alcoholism and, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, and all these things can actually be treated with psychedelics, so-called drugs, right. right? Right. So that's the new wave that's happening right now. It's a very, very promising area. Yeah, you know, as I was working on my, my doctoral degree, I was really drawn deeply into the Greeks, the ancient Greeks especially, and I was, I was fascinated by the cult worship of Dionysus. Yeah. And I, I even wrote a book, you know, Truth Beyond Intellect, on that, where it was that was mainly mythological archetypes and the reincarnation of this god. You know, we don't I don't want to go into that, but I was exposed to this idea of psychedelics and, and pathogens. And of course, alcohol is possibly being used to invoke religious experiences inside yeah. of the ancient Greeks. And you know, I, I even got exposed to some really notable ones like Roland Griffiths and Walter Clark Houston, some of these big names and you know, looking back to the past and trying to to find this uh, this the psychedelic experience, um, 
you know, tying to shamanistic religions or even the Dionysian cult worships. But when you mentioned these good drugs, you know, this psycho, the psychedelic experience that you reference as being so positive in your life from your own perspective, can you kind of explain, you know, what is that practice for somebody who's never tried a psychedelic drug ever, you know, and, and they hear, Oh, it, it, cre- it, it has the potential to tap into you know, really inner meaning, inner peace, inner whatever it might be. What is that? A, what is that like in practice? Is there a way to put that in words, really, to explain? Yeah, that? I think I think it happens on a lot of different levels. I mean, on a neurological level, it actually re- rewires your brain. So, what happens when you take LSD or psilocybin is you're creating new neuro pathways for the same experience. So, when we have an experience in life, we map a neuro pathway for that experience. So that's set. When we have the same experience, we map the same neuro pathways and it becomes an ordinary experience. We look around us and we see the objects in our world and everything's, everything's mapped the same way every time. When you take a psychedelic, it rewires, it, re, it reroutes the neuro net that you're making in your, in, your, in your brain and it creates a new experience. So you see something for the first time and that's why people you know, stare for an hour at a flower. Because yeah. they're seeing it in a completely different way because there's a new neuro map that's now that's now projecting onto that their map of reality. So it changes that and it makes you see things in a completely different way. And that's the that's the uh, the value of, uh, you know, of, of, that can be a very valuable experience because people get stuck in these modes of thinking. They get stuck in their ruts, in their depressive modes or their anxious modes or their neurotic modes. And it can break that cycle. It can actually break out of that. And then you go, oh, there's a new way of looking at things. There's a, there's a, there's a different perspective here that I can look at. And uh, psychedelics give you that perspective. Wow. And that's, that's just one aspect of it. I mean, they can, and they're very inspirational. You know, you can, you can go for a walk in the woods on half a hit of acid and you can just be wonderfully inspired about life and feel connection. One of the things that, um, one of the classic psychedelic experiences, ego dissolution, so you actually lose yourself and you you have a sense of yourself as being a part of everything else. It's a, it's a, a experience of union, of a, a unity. And a lot of people never get that. They're disconnected from themselves. They're disconnected from their families. They're disconnected from their communities. And we're all basically going mad. So what psychedelics, the promise of psychedelics is, is that they can reconnect you with yourself and reconnect you with the world and give you a more positive and creative outlook and improve and enhance the quality of your life. Yeah. And so can you t- tell me, Jimmy, you know, on, on the bad drugs list, you, you take, you know, the Oxycontins, you take the opioids, you take uh, the crack cocaine. There's intense negative side effects to these drugs. I mean, they're just mm. so well documented of how horrific the crash off of of some of these things over time is uh, it from your, does that happen similarly when you're on, take a psychedelic drug? No, it doesn't. Mm. No, because you're, you're doing it for the completely different reason. And it has, it has the complete opposite effect. Really? Oxycontin or heroin or, um, you know, any of the opiates people are taking those for it's for, to, to suppress their pain and their anxiety. And their desperation, it's to mask that. They're doing it to mask those things, whether it's physical. Sometimes it starts out with just physical pain. You know, a lot of people get addicted to opiates through 
painkillers through legitimate reasons, through back problems or pain, you know, injuries. And then they get hooked because they're also addictive. Something right. psychedelics are not. Psychedelics are not physically addictive, but the opiates are. So you can get hooked into those through pain relief, which is physical pain. And then that becomes psychological pain. And a lot of people, a lot of addicts are just trying to kill psychological pain. So they're actually self-medicating. Right. But it's a dangerous way to do it because there are negative side effects. And they, of course, are very addictive and sometimes really difficult to get off. Right. Unlike the psychedelics, which are not addictive. And, uh, you know, nobody nobody ends up in a back alley on LSD. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, well, I, I sorry to flash back because I do this all the time, but going back to the Greek history and, and, I, and, and yeah. you read about like the illusion mysteries. It's kind of a cult worship tied to Demeter and Persephone and, and this goddess of harvest and agriculture. But but anyway, there there's a city, Eleusis, and men, women, slaves, even emperors, they would go to drink, to Eleusis, to drink this magical potion, it was called. When you read it in the in the in the Greek, it's it it's uh it's a, literally called the magical potion, and it's supposed to bring on healing and spiritual insights. Yeah, yeah. And uh, now what we're starting to figure out that that was probably psilocybin is probably what they were were using. Yeah, it's quite speculative, though. I mean, people have speculated about what it might be. It was something yeah. that elevated the spirit. It could have been a psychedelic. It was called Kaikanon. Yeah. And, um, so there has been a lot of speculation that it meant, and there's, and there's no reason why it wouldn't be, but, uh, it's, it's hard to say exactly what psychedelic it would be. Right. But, right. um, it did seem to be some kind of a psychedelic. So yeah, all night dance parties with psychedelics sounds like a rave to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was the thing, you know, and I, when you read <laughs> that and you hear these, these stories of the, of the all night rave, there was just a huge one in Tampa. If you, I'm in Tampa, Florida, and it's just like a massive, you know, 10,000, some people and uh and, and it it so much sounds like that but i think even more importantly that people whether they were slaves emperors or whatever station in society they would make these trips these spiritual journeys right. to the city uh to go through this so there was incredible and 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 the in the words of you know spiritual healing or even physical healing or reconnecting with self were used but you mentioned right out of the gate about some of the research that's going on in the psychedelics and, you know, some of the amazing things that are going on, groundbreaking and in, in curing disease, whether it might be schizophrenia or depression, or I, I even saw something in, in preparing for this podcast, even helping people quit smoking in first, in some cases. Yeah. That, so it changes the way you think. Right? Yeah. So, so can you talk about, you know, some of the some of the stuff that's going on that 30 years ago would have been probably non-existent or even even thought of. Um, in, well, it in was about 20. It was about 25 years ago that Rick Doblin was uh, at Esalen with uh, Terence McKenna. And they were sitting around and they were talking about the difference between natural drugs and unnatural drugs. And um, Terence McKenna said, oh, you you know, you have to do the natural drugs because they're imbued with spirits and animal spirits <laughs> and all this nonsense. Right, so, right. And Rick Dublin challenged him on that. He said, no, actually, MDMA, which Shulgin was making at the time, he said, this is actually very, very useful. And a lot of therapists are using it. And it has legitimate, you know, psychiatric and psychological use. McKenna challenged him on that. 
And he said, no, because it's made in a lab, it's not going to be of any therapeutic value. So that spurred Rick um, and to getting together with these 10 people at Esalen on that weekend. And they all put in $1,000 and they started their quest for um, researching MDMA as a therapeutic uh, prescription. And that's uh-huh. how it started. And then 25 years later, uh, MAPS, which is the organization that Rick Doblin founded, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they've been working on legitimizing and studying MDMA for 25 years. And mm-hmm. it's now, you know, a year or two away from a prescription medication for PTSD. Wow. So that was a that was a very long journey. Talk about tenacity. I think Rick Dobbins yeah. done more for, you know, more for the legitimization of psychedelics than anybody else in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. So do you, and I don't want to get too scientific, but do you know what is it with these psychedelics? Have they figured out, like with the schizophrenia patient, that that can relieve those? So what, what what's yes, going on with this? The unique receptors, the um, uh, what is it, the uh, um, H2A receptors, their uh, serotonin. Um, oh, I can't remember the exact the exact term. Right, serotonin H2A. I think it is. It's a receptor that's unique to LSD and psilocybin, and they just bond in there. And um, that's, there's something wrong with that receptor. It's a, it's a serotonin imbalance, basically. A lot of these mental illness, anxiety, depression, it's to do with serotonin uh, malfunctions. Either the serotonin is released into the brain, and then there's a reuptake function that brings it back and stores it again, and then it's released. Well, a lot of the psychedelics, they release the serotonin. And um, if you have uh, a lot of people with you know, depression and anxiety have a problem with that system, they're not making enough serotonin or they're not reuptake. The reuptake function is, is uh, malfunctioning in some way. And um, psychedelics, perhaps, and this is certainly speculative, but uh, perhaps can somehow repair that system or at hmm. least give it a boost. Like the, uh, I mean, the antidepressants they're using now are SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh-huh. So what they do is they prevent the uh, uptake function so that the serotonin stay more of the serotonin stays in your brain and is available and lev- levels your mood, which is one of the things that it does. Yeah. So so for patients on any of these type of things, and, and if they would take any any type of, of, of this drug, would it I mean, can you I don't even know how to word this properly, Would can you still go about functioning in your, let's say you got, you're on a depression, you're on it for depression, right? Uh, can you drive? Can you go through, I mean, or, or is it, uh, how does this impact your daily life? You know, just on a, just on a functional level of, of going through your day. Well, the way, the way that most people are using psychedelics therapeutically these days for, um, for anxiety, depression, addiction is um, they're microdosing. Okay. When you microdose, you're taking a tiny dose, which triggers the response in your brain, the serotonin response, and it hits your receptors, but it doesn't get you high. So you don't mm. have any psychedelic effect. So if you take so an average dose of LSD is 100 micrograms. So if you take five micrograms or 10 micrograms, somewhere in there, uh-huh. it's such a small dose that you don't actually feel any physical effect. You don't have any, you know, visual effects or you don't have any you don't feel high at all so what happens is 
you um it just has that very very mild background effect of regulating your serotonin system mm -hmm. uh, people are microdosing uh psilocybin they're microdosing mdma which actually it's not that successful as a microdose because it doesn't have an active effect to you actually start to feel it but um yeah there's uh there's a there's a explosion in microdosing i mean i know dozens yeah. of people that are microdosing now lots yeah. of um, people that have even have even never tried psychedelics before are trying microdosing because they've had these they've been on these SR, ssris for years they don't really mm -hmm. work that well they work for some people they don't work for other people and they can cause more problems than they're trying to solve i mean people commit suicide on ssris wow not a very good uh, ad for this for the no no that that doesn't look good at one of the, feel better <laughs> that's not one of the positive disclaimers at the <laughs> no, bottom of every ad major, that's for sure major side effects you know, <laughs> yeah <suicide. laughs> yeah right <laughs> so i want to shift gears for a second you know i saw in your book you mentioned some of the politics, the Nixon administration, I saw and their anti-drug crusades that were really intense. And I mean, that didn't get any better when you move forward to the Bush and the war on the drugs and the Ronald Reagans and the, pretty much every every president in between. But I, I had a fascinating conversation on a different podcast with the with a lawyer who lives in Bogota, Colombia, born and raised. And we were actually talking about all the political upheaval that's going on in Latin America. And But he made a con comment about the cartels and about the power and the drug trade and how how insidiously they impact every aspect of life there. And, and he, he made the comment that he thinks it's time to legalize all drugs. Because this yeah. this this quote unquote war on drugs, whatever it is, however it was, it is it did it doesn't work. It's not working. It probably it never has worked. So, I mean, do you think that's a good idea? I mean, to to legalize all drugs, or do you just see this more as you know being able to make it legal so we can get the research done, so that we can make research advances with your psychedelics, or but just in general terms, uh, what 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 do you think about that? Yeah, I do support the legalization of all drugs and everywhere that it's been tried, it's worked very well. They tried it in Portugal quite, quite a while ago now. They were the first country to ever try that. Mm -hmm. They just made it, they just made it um, legal to, you know, they just took the criminal justice system out of the equation completely. Wow. So if people got caught, they'd be referred to programs. They'd have, you know, if they were addicts, they'd go into rehab. They, they have all those resources the same, but they just, there's no point in throwing an addict into prison. I mean, it, it's pointless exercise. It achieves nothing. It just turns them into a hopeless addict and a hopeless criminal. <laughs> right. So right. it just doesn't, it just doesn't achieve anything. If you're, if your objection, if your objective is to help the person or to you know get them to use drugs responsibly then um that's not going to do it and then everywhere they've tried it they're talking about that in vancouver canada right now mm -hmm. there's a this it's on the it's in the it's in the process right now they're voting on it whether to legalize small amounts of all drugs because i mean you pick some you pick an addict up on the street there's no point in in processing them through the through the criminal justice system and putting them in jail and fining them i mean it's it's a pointless waste of time right but we have to do something else because that's not working you know when i was growing up in england in the 70s there was a heroin epidemic going on in in, in my hometown actually crawley sussex 
had the highest number of registered heroin addicts in the British Isles. Mm -hmm. And I knew, I knew probably two dozen addicts and they would go, they would go and get a prescription. So they instituted this program where they gave them a prescription, English pharmaceutical heroin. They went to the, uh, they got assessed as to their level or whatever, or their dosage. Then they go to the chemist every uh, once a week and they pick up their prescription, the pharmaceutical heroin and a box of syringes. And then they go home and they shoot up. They, you know, they, they satisfy their addiction, but they didn't, when they, when they instituted that program, the crime rate plummeted, you know, because mm -hmm. these addicts, all they do all day long is think about a fix. Sure. So if you take that away and just give them what they need, like a, like a medicine, I mean, if somebody's in pain and they need Oxycontin, you give them Oxycontin. If they're in psychological pain and they're doing heroin, you throw them in jail. Yeah. So um, it doesn't work. And it worked in England. And I saw that work firsthand. I saw all these people, pretty much everybody I knew that was a heroin addict in England at the time and went through this program actually got off heroin. It was a total success. Not only that, they stopped breaking into cars. They stopped breaking into houses. They stopped stealing everywhere. They stopped, you know, spending every waking moment looking for a fix on the street, hanging out with sketchy people. So they just hung out in their rooms and uh, read science fiction novels and went walking around at night with dark glasses on. And they weren't a problem to anybody. Yeah. The other thing about heroin addicts is that pe people miss is that they're actually very sensitive people. Every heroin addict I've ever known has, a, has this sensitivity. They're, they're fragile people. They're fragile psychologists. They're not, you know, monsters. They're, they're actually very, very, um, they're kind of sad. You know, they're, they're hypersensitive in a lot of ways and they just can't hack it. They can't hack the everyday life. They can't hack the job and the boss and the wages and the bills. They just can't do it. So they shrink back and they wrap themselves in this cotton wool blanket of heroin and all their problems go away. So hmm. it's not a great solution, but it's the only solution available to them. So once you take away the, the uh, you know, every waking minute looking for a fix and having to get money for a fix, well, you take that away from their lives and they just sit around and think about their life and think, well, what am I going to do next? They have that, that, that time. They have that space to reevaluate what they're doing. And uh, in most cases that I knew about, they, uh, they turn their lives around and they're now, you know, productive members of society, which is the goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think somehow it just, it's, it's just become embedded in society that we have to just persecute these people constantly. I mean, and all, if I'd be just fully disclosed that in my younger days, I've never tried a psychedelic. So I, I don't, I don't know the experience, but you know, you're kind of conditioned to believe it's all bad all the time. And yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost, it's, it's a, I think it's a, a layover from the, the moral panic of the Victorian times or the, you know, Christian morality. Yeah. Like if you're doing a drug, that's a frivolous thing and that's somehow sinful and it's bad and it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a morally bankrupt. It's a moral issue. I think underlying, it's an underlying moral issue that people have with it. They think that it's, uh, they think that it's immoral to, to get high basically. Yeah. So I think, you know, with the, with the, with the new attitudes towards psychedelics, we're seeing, no, it can actually be a positive thing to get high. Right. And uh, it's obviously not a positive thing to be a crack addict. No, <laughs> no, no we, never. We have solutions to that too. So we just have to rethink it. 
we're, yeah. we're stuck in these we're stuck in these modes of thinking we need to be doing more psychedelics to think about psychedelics. <laughs> there you go well you know it was, it was so fascinating when this guy from colombia i mean the 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 central heart of cartel land in in uh in uh latin america and he did he just outlined it might have been a, a moral thing back then, but in practicality in, in Colombia, these they're so rich, they control the government, they control the politics, they bought off all the politicians. This this money that is the yeah. that's being made from this illegal this illegal activity is funding atrocities all across yeah. Latin America. You know, my wife was born and raised in Venezuela. If you took the drug money out of Venezuela, the banking system would collapse in one day. It would just, it's all propped up by, by, by these cartels laundering just hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so yeah, you know, there's no perfect solution when we look at this, but it's, it's fascinating. I talked to him and then to talk to you, it's like, we need to, we need to reevaluate what's going on and why we're doing what we're doing rather than just assume blanket. We, because, you know, back in the seventies, we had some presidents start a war on drugs that obviously has failed at every, at every, every level. So. Yeah. But, I think the way to deal with the cartel problem and the whole rotten business is to take the money out of it. Yeah, so yeah, that's the legalization argument again. There if you go. Take, if you take the money out of it and you give people their prescriptions for free on the health system, there's no money on the street for it, and the cartels have got no business, and they go, they'll move to something else. There you go, and and that's what he was saying. It's like they have so much money, they're buying off every politician to do anything, whatever they want to do, yeah, whenever yeah. they want to do it, and that's not in the best interest of the whole society. That's just in the best interest of the of the cartels. So so interesting, but so so Jimmy, you you mentioned in your book, and I saw it's a long book. I was it like three. You wrote a long book. There is what three hundred, two hundred and fifty, three hundred pages long, something like three, that. Three twenty, I think. Yeah, a long book. But so so, can you just give? The listeners just kind of a flavor of some of the maybe there's a story that stands out to you like that that's maybe one of the most profound ones or, or or give us a little flavor of like from all your travels and experiences something that stands out to you from your book um well that's tough because there's been so many and that was, <laughs> that was a big problem with the book is like i wanted to put the peak experiences in and there were so many right no longer than war and peace I in had the to end. edit them down quite drastically I don't know. I think some of my experiences at, uh, at raves were probably my first experience at a rave was one of the most was, was definitely one of the most profound experiences in my life. I was um, I was 40 years old. Uh -huh. This is 1996, I'm 65 now. And uh, a friend of mine that I babysat as a as a baby, as a one year old, came to visit me. It was my friend's son. Mm -hmm. So he showed up at my door in Vancouver and um, said you know there's this new thing called rave and everybody's going to raves and they're great and it's new music and i'm a musician so i was interested in the music but i'd never heard right. electronic dance music before right so he said and there's this new drug called mdma and you know you take this <laughs> drug and you go to the rave and everybody's super friendly and happy and it's fantastic and it's the latest greatest thing right so i said okay that that sounds that sounds good i'm in <laughs> so it took a hit of MDMA. I went into this rave and the a Salvation Army, an, an ex-Salvation Army church. So the DJs are up in front of the stained glass windows and the altar. And there's about four or 500 people there. There's several rooms. 
everybody's dressed in these crazy costumes. It was like walking into another world. And then when the when the E started to kick in, the MDMA started to come up on that, and it was just this um, this connection. You know, I, I I got swept up with the music. I'd never heard music like it before. Just right. this continuous thunderous stream of pounding beats, like a shaman's drum, and it was hit right. And they started to dance for the first time in 25 years. <laughs> wow. And um, as the night wore on, it just got more and more profound. I felt this intense connection and empathy with myself and with everybody there. And we were just like one, one complete whole, you know, flock of birds or shoal of fish, all just moving, pulsing to this beat. It was a it was a transcendental experience. I've done a lot of meditation in my life too, and I've had some powerful experiences in meditation. Uh-huh. But that was the that was the most powerful meditation I ever had. It was like, oh, this is it. This is wow. how you become one with the universe. You know. Wow. So that was pretty profound. And I, you know, danced all night till seven o'clock in the morning. The sun came up through the stained glass windows, and you know, if I believed for a second in, in God, I would have. I would have been praising the Lord right there. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. uh, walked out into the morning, this crisp new morning, and uh, it was a new day in, uh, you know, the, the, the new, new, new phase of my life that I began. And then I became a race promoter and started putting on these parties because I thought they were so great and everybody should try it. <laughs> yeah, incredible. So is that, I don't assume that probably every time someone would do that, they would get an identical experience. I mean, I assume there's varying levels of, of this. Yeah. It's one of the most, it's one of the most um, reliable and consistent experiences in the drug world though. I mean, people have a lot of different experiences on LSD and psilocybin and they're really dependent upon your psychology, you know, where you're at, like what Leary called set and setting your frame of mind and your environment are very, very, very tied into that. MDMA less so, because MDMA is not really a true psychedelic. It's more of an empathogen. So Mm -hmm. it just engenders this feeling of empathy, not just with people around you, but with yourself. You get this connection that, uh, you know, I think people are really missing in their lives. When I was doing parties for, I did about 35 different uh, rave events, usually one a month, and um, had this very, very tight-knit group of people we had this organization called SPEC, which was the Society for the Perpetuation of Empathiogenic Celebrations. Mm. So we have 300 people on an email list, send them the email, you know, the proved location, secret locations, you know, warehouses and you know, right. buildings and whatnot. So we'd all show up and we do these parties. And I, I routinely saw people's lives change at those events, people coming in cold, you know, from nowhere and then getting swept up in the experience. And you could just see them change. And in the morning, they just be their mouths would be hanging open. They say, "Wow, that's the first time that I've ever felt like that. It's the first time I've ever felt, you know, that I love myself. It's the first time that I ever felt connected to a group of people. And it's as a group of strangers, you know, like socially awkward people would come in and just. I saw, I saw, you know, hundreds of people's lives transformed through that experience. And it was quite a unified experience. I very rarely, very rarely saw anybody have any type of negative effect on MDMA. It was, and it was always the same type of positive effect that they had. So it's one of the most consistent, uh, reliable drug experiences that you can get. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating that compared to some of these religious experiences, where you go all the way back to ancient times or 
it, it's almost uh, literally a transformative event. That's not, you know, you drink a, you drink alcohol, you get drunk, you might be happy, but then the next day you feel completely and utterly horrible when you come down after getting drunk. Yeah. This, this is completely, it, it's such a, such a fascinating, fascinating thing. But, you know, you do hear, Jimmy, what do, what do you say to those who say, oh, I hear all about those negative, the negative trips, the, you know, you, you, or you'll see a movie where someone is high on a psychedelic and they have this horrific, awful, terrible, horrifying experience. What, what do you, what causes that? Or what, what do you think attributes to that when, when people go through that side of it versus say the positive side of things? Well, it's because they have psychological disturbances in the first place. Mm. And those, the psychedelics don't put anything in your mind that isn't already there. Really? They just amplify. They amplify what's there. Uh-huh. They're like amplifiers. So if you're disturbed and you take a high dose LSD, you're probably going to get very disturbed because it's going to amplify that. So right. it's all about use and misuse. You need to, you need to start very low dose and, it's uh, if you if somebody has a bad experiences on psychedelics it's because they've misused them. Yeah, they've either done the wrong frequency or dosage, the wrong mindset, the wrong environmental setting, something they, they've done something wrong. And it's not hard. You know, the, the information is out there. It's not hard to get it right these days. Right. You just have to uh, you just have to use them responsibly. And if you do, it's virtually impossible to go sideways. Right. OK. OK. Very good. So so. One last question I have for you. So you're, if you're talking to somebody who has never tried psychedelic drugs, holds a very traditional view of drugs in general, you know, what would you want them most to understand from about psychedelics in general, or even, you know, people always relate well to stories and how that's actually impacted your life in the long, long term. You've obviously got a 50 year journey of using this so talk a little bit to someone who's listening this says there's no way i don't want to hear any of that the drugs the drugs the drug and and what what would you most want them to understand if you could about about psychedelics well i think the first thing i do is recommend that they read my book there you oh yeah of Fashions course of an ethical drug dealer by there Jimmy you Kretz, <laughs> available at fine bookstores everywhere yes yeah interestingly enough there's an there's only one one negative uh, um psychedelic experience that i ever had and it was the first time i took lsd and i was uh 15 years old mm-hmm. and um i just took it and i didn't know what it was we were experimenting with this and that we were just kids and somebody said do you want to try this trip man and i said okay so i took this what turned out to be 350 micrograms of uh, purple microdot so it was an incredibly strong dose, wow. and it was the first time. It, and I'd never, I didn't know anything about LSD or anything about the effects. And I just swallowed this thing, and I went to hell and back. And mm. I described, I described the experience in my book, uh, in quite great detail. Uh-huh. And I did it to just offset that this, this is what happens if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and the right. Rest of the book is sort of explaining how to do it right. Interestingly enough, I had that memory, and that's that's a fifty-year-old memory. Mm-hmm. Well, I know how unreliable memories are because I've you know studied memory to some degree. Sure. So I was wondering how accurate it would be. Well, I sent it to a friend of mine that I knew at the time in England. Send him a copy of the book, and he read it. And he called me up, and he said, "You know that experience you had with LSD, the really bad one?" I said, "Yeah." Uh-huh. He said, "That's exactly 
how you recounted it the day after it happened. Wow. Because I saw this guy that even the day after or the day after the day after, and it was very recent. And I explained and I told him about the whole trip. And he said it was exactly almost word for word what was in wow. the book, which was gratifying that my memory was right. Yeah. And then he said that um, because of that experience at the time, he decided and vowed that he would never do LSD in his life. Mm. And that's why in the next 50 years, he'd never tried it. Oh, my goodness. But when I spoke to him, and we're both 65 now. Uh -huh. So when I spoke to him recently, he read the book and he said, I'm really interested in trying uh, trying to microdose LSD now because he has mm -hmm. problems with depression. Mm -hmm. And um, he's been battling that for decades, apparently. So right. Now he's microdosing LSD with excellent results. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> so that's what I would say. I'd say yeah. if you want to know about psychedelics and a positive, how they can affect a life in a positive, upbeat way, then read my book. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So was it a was it a combination of physical and psychological that made it so bad? Or I mean, did you was it like heart racing? Was it Oh, I was, thought was, it was, was dead. I thought it was a lizard. I thought it wow. was crazy. Uh <laughs> The guy I was with went nuts and smashed up my apartment. I mean, it was a, it was uh, a total yeah. it was a total nightmare, and it wow. still remains to this day the only negative effect I've ever had. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, so, so that's the, that's that's the warning, you know, that if you don't do it right, you don't take these things seriously, and you don't do them responsibly, and you don't respect frequency and dosage and set and setting, then you can have a bad experience. Right. If you do respect those things and you do it properly it may change your life in very, very powerful and profound ways. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a great, I think that's almost a great spot where we can, we can even stop there, but yeah. you know, I think, I think it just strikes me so strongly as, as human consciousness, because I think we just assume life is what it is as it is. And there's no other layers. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in the stuff that we're experiencing on our, on the, our five senses that, it's probably just the tip of the iceberg of our total existence. And it appears psychedelic experience is something unless you get deeper, right? It's unless, yes, you, unless you go inside rather than that focus on all the external stuff. Yeah. There's a whole new world out there to try. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think the psychedelics and I've never tried them, but they're fascinating. And, and I appreciate you so much taking the time okay. to come on here and, and Jimmy, so I'm going to put, and for everybody, I'm putting the link to Jimmy's book underneath. And so you can just click it and go ahead and buy, buy Jimmy's book there. And is there any other, do you do social media at all or anything like that, Jimmy? Or yeah, I have really? a website because I'm also a musician. So I've got five albums. I've got uh, 28 music videos that I've made in my original songs in the last couple of years. And oh, okay. they're all on, everything's on my website at jimmyfritz.ca. Awesome. So there you go, jimmyfritz.ca. And so check out Jimmy wherever wherever you want to find, but especially that book. And, and once again, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Jimmy. And I so appreciate right. you taking the time today. Thanks a lot, David. All, All right. Best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I so hope you found value in the topic today. You know, every single day if we can expand our perspective just a little bit on any range of topic whether it be about our physical body intellectual sharpness and perspective or spiritual growth then if we stay consistent in the long run we all become more well-rounded people able to cope with all manner of events in life
I always appreciate you clicking like or follow to this podcast. Generally, a new episode is published every single week. And please, if you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear about them. With that, I hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week until we talk again.